0: Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. How can I find the stability needed for
1: long-term success? by investing with the world's largest active fund manager, who oversees over 2.3 trillion US dollars worldwide, adapting and growing across the globe, with more than 340 long-standing portfolio managers and analysts that have earned unrivaled access to the companies they invest in. Can I find a firm that values long-term stability like I do? With Capital Group, I can.
0: back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack and today I'm joined by Adam Crabb. G'day Adam. Hi Fraser. Thanks for joining me today. Now today uh, we're here to talk about, uh, well quite a few different things actually, but really around the concept of client connection and uh, obviously the, the company that you work with has done a lot of research into this of course and uh, what we might do is talk about all that research. There's a white paper, there is uh, focus reports, all these sorts of things that um, I've had a look at and some presentations that you've done on it. So Thank you for joining me today. Before we get into it, I might just quickly start with you. Who are you and, and why are we talking together?
1: Yes, so look, it's fantastic to to be with you. Um, so who am I? I uh, I'm a risk strategy specialist. I'm a bit of an insurance guru, if you like, uh, and have been uh, with Zurich for just over three years. Um, I've always had a passion for wealth protection uh, and protecting people's, um, uh, you know, their finances. Their family, um, and you know, this particular client connection piece is really an extension of that. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to do is try and find opportunities, uh, opportunities where, if there is um, a bit of a gap in terms of an offering something that could really enhance that financial advisor-client uh, relationship, uh, that's something that I really like to try and hone in on and make, uh, you know, make come to life. So it ultimately benefits not just the advisor but the community at large.
0: Yeah, fantastic! Helping people, I love it. It's a, sort of a, a shared passion of mine. So they're very good. Um, so tell us about the this piece. And you, obviously, we did some. Re, you did some research. Uh, when I say we, because uh, XY community was involved in some way. Do you, tell us about That's the right. research that happened.
1: Yeah, so we sort of knew instinctively that financial planners were doing a lot more than. I dare say, just providing financial planning advice, which obviously is critical, but we got a sense that there was a lot more going on. We sort of heard anecdotally that, you know, advisors were kind of becoming an extension of the client's family in some ways, um, going to barbecues and weddings, uh, even funerals. And we thought, well, what is actually happening? What's going on? And is that providing a broader betterment to the financial planning relationship and even the tenure of that client? And so we sort of, Went down the track of trying to really find out, um, how much and to what extent. So, yeah, so we, we were really fortunate to reach out to the XY advisor community. And what we found was quite, um, revolutionary. Uh, just the level of engagement that advisors are having beyond that traditional financial planning mold. Um, yeah, it was, um, uh, elements around you, will certainly how much of it, if what you're doing is outside that traditional. And over 90%, Fraser was saying that, yes, their role is kind of almost morphing into things like coaching and counselling. Um, and even with that, we thought, wow, well, what is it that is going on? What's happening? What's What are you talking about? Uh, and a lot of this then drove us into understanding that things like um, emotion, there was a lot of emotional interactions that, that was happening, which, as we know, is driving a lot um, of clients to become more forthcoming in the sorts of um, information that they divulge. Um, almost sort of lets the guard down. Um, you know, Around 70% of advisors apparently now being told a secret by their client, and apparently the financial advisor is the only person that this particular client has actually divulged that secret to, which... It, my mind was blown when i found it. i was like wow like there's such a level of trust and this kind of up, up the doorway to because apparently one of the, the the most common things that's discussed from a non-financial perspective was health it was lifestyle it was stuff happening outside of work um, so that really started off part of that the process to um exploring this uh client connection and the research behind it
0: Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of that, you know, the lifestyle, financial planning. Obviously, I've I've talked about goals and values-based advice for many years. Really getting down to these, what are, you know, some of your goals and values and and passions and beliefs and and the things that you like to do every day that aren't necessarily just about saving money or investing money or spending money. Um, Obviously, money has a small piece to do with it because it's all intertwined, but it's really around looking at a client as a human being and saying, what are the things that drive you and motivate you? Uh, to do so uh, you know that's been it's been a massive you know thing that I've loved to follow as well so I just really resonate with that word uh, the secret that's uh, you know being divulged to secret
1: yes it was incredible just the 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 notion that people are um, really um, uh, quite open to talking about themselves who they are uh, and really opening that door to someone's soul in a way Um uh, and you think about any other industry or profession. I just, you know, I can't think of any that are like that. I mean, even, you know, we're finding out now that financial advisors are knowing a lot more than even their own doctors. You know, it's it's far more than just health. It's money. It's it's goals, dreams, wishes, its aspirations, its income, uh, and even from the X Y uh, advisor findings, uh, it's it's extending into it things like addiction issues to conflicts with children to marital issues which obviously have significant impacts to someone's you know finances but also significant impacts to their mental health um, their emotional well-being and you know it's it was startling um, but one of the things that we've tried to do is kind of capture and gravitate this data and make it um, uh, and make it valuable in terms of how we approach that from a financial planning lens, from an advice value add. And that's why we've come out with each of these different, not just the white paper, but the focus report. So it's data into what it is that people are doing, the sorts of things that um, is driving them to, um, you know, to work hard, to provide for their families, and then the uh, emotional or almost the therapeutic value that advice offers to that client relationship. And then practical tools of, of what advisors can do to implement change, to um, use some of the insights from some of these um, you know new ways of thinking into their own their own business model.
0: Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. And and just from that from that high level before we get into the nitty gritty of the of the research, um, the idea of an advisor creating a, a financial plan, which is you know obviously around right now, and then projecting it forward into the future, relies so heavily on that you know, the human behaviours, the health, the well-being, the lifestyle, that if you're not doing that, I guess my point is if I want to make is if you're not doing that part of the the process, then the financial plan is never going to be right. It's going to be always going to just, you know, be derailed by by something else.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And look, I think, and as we know, look,
0: it's probably stuff that advisors
1: are doing instinctively, but um, it's a case of really leveraging their value off that. So really opening up the discussion and then that, in turn, is actually having significant benefits to that, um, that longer-term relationship.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Now, so t- so let's start with the white paper. Tell us about the white paper. That's the, sort of the main piece of this.
1: Yes, it is. So, look, I'm a bit of a data junkie, Fraser, <laughs> so I love the insights. I love the data. And um, when we understood or, or kind of realized that what people are doing from a non-financial perspective was so critically important, we, um, we sort of dug deep um, and... Um, found some um, fairly recent government data, Australian government data, just on the sorts of activities that people are doing. Um, Be they, you know, recreation, hobbies, leisure and from that um, it kind of painted a bit of a picture in terms of what it is that Australians we love doing. I mean, you know, anecdotally we're such an active nation but trying to find out what it is that we're doing um, and then coupled with that the mental health benefits. Uh, Particularly as many of us, you know, come out of a you know, COVID lockdown, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are many clients out there that are just looking forward to nothing more than getting back to doing what they truly love to do. And, you know, we, we kind of know that it's not, we don't just love it, but it's good for us, good for our soul. Uh, but of course, there are risks inherent in what we do. And, you know, even if it's something as well trivial as going for a walk, um, some of this data and some of the, the research that we've uncovered is that there are actually risks in that. And what we've managed to do, interestingly, is quantify the different activities that people are doing and overlay that with certain risks so that if an advisor was to chat to someone and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about taking up soccer or basketball or rugby league, um, we've actually built tools that enable advisors to say, well, actually, look, yes, that's fantastic. And here is some of the insights into the mental health benefits, but it's probably worth just discussing some of the risks and how they compare to other sports. Um, or leisure activities or hobbies um, and of course that can then lend into that broader discussion of appropriateness product selection um, and you know if it's something that the clients are comfortable in and taking from a risk perspective.
0: Yeah it's, a, it's certainly a massive piece and, and you do interlay those you know those activities and as we look at those activities let's get let's jump into them because some of them are a little bit more risk Risky than others um, yes, and so and so you've gone into some of those activities and said well look we, we really need to sort of think about what they can do not just obviously from a you know a, a risk product point of view because we're not sort of talking about product today but from a from yes. a lifestyle um, how is this going to affect your lifestyle what are the things that we need to think about from a risk assessment point of view
1: yeah absolutely and look you you're hundred percent right I you know when we uncovered part of this this data research we found that um, there was um, you know, some of the the uh, hobbies that people are doing are quite significantly um, high risk. Um, so, some of the more common ones around recreational walking, fitness gym, jogging, swimming are probably some of the more commonplace type um, activities. Uh, you know, and some people listening I'm like, yes, you know, that certainly resonates with me. Um, but when we look at some of the uh, more common or perhaps less common um, type pursuits, things like push bike riding, even soccer, surfing, cricket. You know, some of these type of sports are actually quite high on the on the risk spectrum. Uh, and, and when I say risk, one of the things that we wanted to uh, understand was um, what uh, are the risks of hospitalisation that happens off the back of some of these events? Because typically, those sorts of things are uh, are quite impactful. Um, you know, suddenly people can stop work very short notice, uh, and do they have you know liquid assets that they can get access to um, at very short notice? Um, but being able to articulate this information from a, a financial advisor to a client, we felt that the information just wasn't there. But with some of the planners that we piloted this particular program through, um, the information we got was that um, they felt it would be quite valuable to have access to something which they could use to say, well, look, yes. Oh, you you do bike riding. That's fantastic. But are you aware of the, um, you know, the chance of, um, you know, something happening to you and what that risk looks like compared to, say, simply going for a walk or playing netball? Um, or, you know, like I do, you know, my pursuit is jumping on the back of a motorcycle. Um, so yes, mine tends to be a bit high risk, uh, but then having a, put a bit of a playing field to articulate how do these sports and leisure pursuits compare from a risk
0: perspective? And obviously you did some work on the idea around cost of care and cost of recovery. Talk a little bit about that, but also tell us your story around uh, around your motorcycling uh, addiction.
1: Yes. Um, so, look, on the cost of care, um, one of the things that um, that particular program of work, and, look, it wasn't just me behind that, but um, someone I know, the XY family knows very well, Danny Visser, amazing. Um, so together we um, really tried to answer that question as to what, you know, illnesses and injuries um, cost uh, across Australia. Uh, And one of the findings from the cost of care was that in terms of the total cost impacts of the total health spend across Australia, injuries actually sat at number two. So they were the second uh, most costly type event, if you like, um, happening in Australia today. Um, So that was in a way part of the genesis for the client connection piece of work um, was to understand, well, let's just explore that injury Sub segment, just a little bit more, uh, and uh, that's kind of led us in part to where we are. But yes, with with my own sort of situation and circumstance, um, you know, yes, there's sort of risk inherent in everything. Uh, but around a year ago, um, you know, my leisure pursuit um, ended up seeing me in hospital for a spell. In fact, I was in a high dependency ward for um, for a short period of time. So I was involved in an accident. It was only a, a relatively sort of low speed type accident, uh, but I since found out my um, you know orthopaedic surgeon mentioned that um, they're often some of the most dangerous in terms of risk to to you know to limb as it were. Um, so yeah, involved in an accident, um, had about six to seven broken ribs. Um, I um, shattered my right um, shoulder blade, my scapula, uh, and was off work for three months. So this was obviously quite dramatic, uh, quite painful, and, um, you know, kind of landed me in a situation of, um, well, how will I fare uh, in this particular situation? And honestly, one of the great surprises off the back of that was, you know, despite the fact that I'm quite financially literate, obviously I understand insurance products perhaps better than average, <laughs> um, was that even in my own situation, despite the fact that I had great support um, in, you know, a family, wife, um, I was getting physiotherapy care, I was speaking to GPs, medical specialists, surgeons, as I mentioned, I felt there was something missing, Fraser. And, you know, in my situation, and one of the things I found out afterwards after doing some independent research was that it's actually very common that people in situations where an accident happens, even illnesses are suffered, is that they need direction they need some um, something that you know GPS medical specialists even family and friends can typically not provide uh, and that is um, someone to keep you on track from a financial perspective um, so really one of the things that I felt was that and perhaps what was lacking in my situation was that assistance from my advisor um, to help, make sure that you know money's coming in regardless of the source, whether it's from an insurance contract or a motor accident claim, um, workers' compensation, whatever the, the illness or, or injury. And that even despite the fact that um, something has happened and taken people off track from what was their financial you know, plan or strategy, that the advisor is there to just kind of keep track of what you're doing. So really with the client connection piece, what I've, I've done here is include some of the ways in which a financial advisor can actually help, um, even if um, even if someone is not a you know a client necessarily, um, some of the uh, piloted planners are actually saying they're actually getting referrals from um, people who weren't uh, you know their own clients, but purely for the fact that they're actually there helping people from an advocacy perspective it's such a valuable resource that people are not only paying for that particular service, but willing to recommend people because it kind of lifts the ethical bar somewhat. Um, But often some of the planners we spoke to were saying, well, how do you do that? What are some of the ways in which you can help people when something happened? Like surely there's just too many people around, you know, medical people and family and friends, but, know, the short answer is no, there really is a significant opportunity for an advisor to actually step in and keep people on track, you know, make sure that they're liaising with medical specialists. Uh, How is their recovery going? Um, Their rehabilitation? What plans are they undertaking? Uh, One of the great things that helped me was tracking my milestones. So everything from how many medications I was taking each day in the early stages, it was around 20 to 25 different pills each day. One of my goals was to get off them as quickly as possible, I hate taking um you know tablets and things. so every week, I would just kind of you know jot down um, you know how many I could manage and reduce that and you know that's something I think the advisor could be party to is well, what are you on track with what's that looking like? Um, for me, it was lifting weights, um being able to hold a phone to my ear. I think it was around six and a half weeks before I could actually lie flat and, and sleep back in my bed. Uh, So it's often these little things around, well, what are those little progress uh, milestones? Um, You know, are we on track? And is it something that is really driving someone? And, you know, from an emotional uh, and mental perspective, it was such a valuable thing to do because I was able to track where I was and how much better I was doing even, you know, almost on a daily basis
0: it's um it's incredible so obviously off the back of you I mean, that's your personal story right because you, you look at this in two sides you look at it from the personal story that you've been through and, and the as you mentioned the emotional and mental um states and things that that helped you recover and then yeah. you've got the, the the medical stuff that helped you recover and then you've got the financial side of it so obviously you'd be able to see this f- from the from the inside looking out as well as the outside looking in uh, yes. one of the stats that came out was 60 you, you were one of 60,000 other Australians that year, that was, you know, that was uh, hospitalized because of their uh, their sports and leisure injuries. But I, I want to get into some of these ways to help because, the, you know, tracking the milestones was one way to help. As you mentioned, I, I think if I look around the country, I've spoken to a lot of risk specialists over time that that put a lot into that um, claims process. Um, have a whole, you know, structure and process around helping clients through that. It suits, you know, everything to with regards to setting some goals and milestones and then helping a client track it along the way. Um, it doesn't necessarily involve a, a statement of advice from an, a financial planner to to be able to help a client in this during this claims process. Tell us about what you see as some of the other ways that advisors can help during this during this time.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And what what's interesting with a, a lot of the planners that we've spoken to, um, and, and not just off the back of this particular piece of work, but across many years, is really trying to find ways in which, and I don't want to use the word capitalising, but how some advisors are really transforming the way they give advice uh, off the base of the value add that they provide, particularly in that um, claims or even non-claims advocacy space. So some practices have, uh, and uh, have, I suppose, taken stock on even some of the simple things they do. So, um, you know, the question that they've asked themselves and their team is, what, what do we have in place if a client or perhaps a client's partner, spouse, was to call us and say something's happened? You know, is it a case of, you know, like you said, you don't necessarily need to jump into, you know, a statement of advice mode, but is it just making sure that they have the support that they need? Um, uh, some uh, planning firms have a claims kit, something that they can just, you know, get access to, almost like a bit of a checklist for some staff, um, because some of the advice firms they're in such, um, you know, rural or regional areas that, you know, the the staff themselves are really well known to the clients and the community. So they can actually take quite an active um, step in assisting, reporting back with the client situation, um, you know, in some cases discussing with family members. Um, so th- there's there's certainly an element to that. Um, uh, one of the fears, though, um, from some of the, the advisors that were just sort of jumping into this stage was a fear that, they didn't know enough to be able to provide assistance and support but really some of the the leading advisors in this space Fraser and you may be across this yourself is that they're not experts they don't need to be experts they can rely on others they can simply be that port of call um, helping them direct almost project manage in a way Um, you know if people are not feeling themselves then helping them to direct them towards a you know a GP a psychologist a counselor social worker um, uh, just making sure that money's in the bank, making sure that they're getting the help that they need, um, is often those small steps, but really, really valuable ones. Um, just knowing that there's that kind of care factor, and as we talked earlier, you know, clients are you know giving themselves really to a lot of advisors, particularly around that stuff we talked about, you know, addiction issues, conflicts with kids, marital issues. So there's almost an expectation that if something goes wrong, that advisors are there to sort of um, be involved. And it, it, it's not necessarily a to a degree that requires that statement of advice, that written record, but just to be there, um, to talk them through, to make sure that they're checking in. Um, even if it's a five minute conversation once a week or once a fortnight, um, it just provides such a significant difference to that um,
0: planner client relationship. Yeah. I, well, I, I really like the term care factor actually that you mentioned. And, um, because you're right there, there could be a fear involved in, Oh, look, I'm not a therapist. I don't want to get, don't want to step on toes. I don't want to bet. But I think we kind of are as, as, as planners, they are in a way uh, a therapist and because just, just by sitting and listening um, you know, it can create, can create create great therapy for, um, for the client. So I like like the idea of um, using that, am i demonstrating that we care like is there a care factor involved does the, does the client feel that we care because of the, the way that we're going through this but but you know i think um you know that's really interesting and and, and putting some checklists around the, the concept of how do we how do we hope help in all those areas and you know are we checking in to make sure that you know the client's emotional state or mental state or or their their other parts of their life is recovering and on track. So
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think if if you uh, um, if, if planners are looking for more, um, we've included that as part of this client connection work. So you mentioned the milestones. Look, for me, that was significant. Um, some of the other uh, data and research we uncovered was um, advisors should be um, talking to clients and saying, look, try and avoid making major decisions or big life changes, at least until you feel better. Um, even if someone is physically impaired, sometimes that can really translate to their mental incapacity. And, you know, Maybe getting to people just to sort of focus on their um, their recovery, even things like making time for regular exercise, if that's at all possible. Um, helping get people to a little bit back to normality before making significant decisions um, is often actually welcomed at a later stage. You know, wow, you know, some of the feedback we've got has been client table. We were so um grateful because you know looking back that we really wasn't the right decision to make i wasn't in the right headspace um so just just some of those um uh, small things can actually make a big difference
0: yeah it's interesting so now's not the time in other words we, yes. we, we, we need to do some you know obviously let's say you've had a payout or you've got something now's not the time to do it we just settle down we wait and then when you've you've mentally and physically recovered then we yeah, make sure dis- long-term decisions to take those small steps one of the interesting facts I found
1: um, uh, was that, um, particularly with physiotherapists, uh, it's obviously a very um, physical type role, you know, manipulating muscles, um, you know, around um, 90% of a physiotherapist's role is actually mental. So if if their patients and clients are not mentally prepared to get better, it really doesn't matter how much manipulation these physiotherapists do, um, it's not likely to be... Um, as dramatic, um, you know, people need to be mentally geared up even for physical um, uh, betterment, as it were. So, yeah, it's it's really. You can't underestimate the power um, of someone being mentally in the right headspace even for something um,
0: like the physical repair that people uh, and medical professionals actually work with. yeah I, I kind of feel that very much the same way about financial plans I, I feel like um you know ten percent of them is the is the numbers and and ninety percent of them is the mental state that somebody's yes. willing to do the work because it's all sets and reps right you know you, you've still got yeah. to do some work to to to, to implement it. Um, fantastic so so as we dig into the um the white paper obviously we've got the concept around how you know that you know the, how these things all work together and then we can go into some of the some of the items like um like we just been through and setting up some claims services what are some of the other um, things that advisors can take away from the white paper
1: yeah, so one of the things that we're noticing is that, um, and part of the last of the reports, the um, the Value Beyond the SOA report that we published, um, he took, looks at some of the ways some planners have actually made changes um, in the way that they're giving advice. Um, some have decided to sort of pivot their practice from the front end, so the way that they are engaging from a fact-find perspective. Others have actually used some of the, the information from an ongoing perspective. So what we've done in that final report is really provide a bit of a practical um, or series of practical ways that um, some of the planners have actually decided to utilise the insights. So we really wanted to make sure that it wasn't just about like the data and the numbers while it's interesting and useful, um, you know, how you can actually make a change, make a difference in your business. So um, that was certainly one in terms of that back office type approach. Um, others have so, actually. Um,
0: so if we go so of, if we go into that, sorry, can I just dive into that? So sure, um, sure. The, the practical ways, as you mentioned, some of them, some of them have implemented that forward looking thing in, in, in a new way of, you know, like rethinking their advice process.
1: Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And even the remuneration phrases. So uh, part of dipping the toe into this kind of area, uh, and actually some planners that we've spoken to have done this from a pro bono perspective, just to kind of give them a bit of an upskill in terms of what it's like to interact with people that are going through sort of traumatic events, um, is that they've got processes in place that they're able to articulate their value add and be able to apply a cost overlay for that, and um, it, it's interesting to see some of the businesses that are doing that from a non-claims perspective. So these are practitioners who may not be overly, you know, insurance savvy, and they don't need to be, because what they're doing is providing that differentiation through these stages of, you know, recovery, rehabilitation, and being able to apply their own value. In that framework, so um, you know, some planners have actually shifted their entire business model to engage just on claims advocacy and non-claims advocacy. Now, we're not suggesting; certainly, other advisors do that, but you know, if they're not um, utilising their you know after-claims um, skill set, um, which for many might just kind of be a sleeper, uh, we do see that as a significant opportunity, one which. Could not only enhance that relationship, but actually provide a financial benefit to that particular business.
0: Well, okay, so uh, yeah, check out the uh, check out one of the some of the reports if you want to dive a bit deeper into that. Now, um, one of the things I want to cover off is the the concept that just getting advice is actually a therapy.
1: Yes, look, it's true. It's uh, it, it was a, a, almost a, a one of those instinctive things which we kind of knew, but we wanted to. Um, find out just how much of a difference it makes. And the second of our focus reports goes into the real psychology of advice. And that's a therapeutic value you mentioned. And what we've uncovered is that clients are more open, they're more willing to divulge, willing to engage, uh, and more receptive to the value of advice. Um, And what we're finding is that the, um, part of that psychology of advice is that exploring the non-financial aspects means that planners are more ingrained in that kind of family or client network. Um, and it's extending into things like, you know, um, mortgage brokers and accountants, solicitors, because the it's not just about, you know, cash flow, retirement planning. It's it's everything. Everything that the the client, their family, their spouse are doing, they want to um, – they want to include that advisor um, to make sure that they are maximising just not not only their financial benefit but their um, almost their their life benefit, if that makes sense. So it's it's a case of trying to extend the um, the 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 benefit into um, greater communication. So we're finding even one of the interesting bits of research was that. Uh, the value that the financial advisor is providing is actually having a betterment to the communication between husband, wife or client and spouse. Like it's, it's significant because it's just open, it's clearing the air. And, you know, money is such a, um, it's such a, an important part of what makes up a family dynamic. It's extending to, um, different elements of that particular situation. Um, some advisors are becoming mediators between family and extended family members. Like it's it's having flow-on effects to um, other areas. Some of which is quite quite surprising.
0: Yeah. So the, I really want to dive into this sort of section because I, I think it's really important. So the, a part of the the, the survey was was a look a dive into the concept of ha- how much time would a an advisor spend actually talking about financial advice during a conversation how much time was sort of spent with sort of non-financial issues um, talk, tell us about some of those uh, those conversations
1: yeah, it was quite startling it, it uh, certainly in the early days um, I think you know financial planning is built on you know that sort of financial strength the technical knowledge expertise um, but really that that is starting to shift and it is extending into these sort of non-financial areas and it's becoming As you've alluded to, it's kind of becoming almost a core part of of the discussions that they're having with their uh, their clients. But what's interesting is their business is increasing. So part of the the, uh, data we've got, when we sort of reached out and surveyed um, through the XY advisor community, we found that, uh, you know, 45% of advisors agreed their business had increased and uh, 28% had strongly agreed that their business has increased purely uh, because of um, allocating their time to non-financial issues um, because it's extending into their, really what are the core values of that individual? And that is um, becoming a significant differentiator because there are no other professions really that um, engage in that non-financial area as much. Uh, In fact, one firm we spoke to, they've um, aligned their business model Um, with an accountability overlay and what it's meaning is that even from like a cash flow um, type perspective they're kind of checking in on their clients quite regularly just to make sure that they're hitting the milestones hitting the mark and what they're finding is they're getting a lot of um, referrals from uh, what I would call non-traditional strategic alliances like personal trainers those that have a similar you know mindset around you know, health, wellbeing, accountability, um, and they're finding that there's a, a similar profession that's doing it from a financial perspective. So it's um, it's one which is um, starting to shift the way I think um, people in the community see financial planning, but also the value that they offer.
0: Yeah, so this is a really interesting thing. Over the last few years, um, I've talked about the concept of, um, you know, the, we had a we had a legislation coming, talked about fee for service, and I want to get into the way that advisors charge for their advice at the moment. Um, then we sort of move to the the concept of fee for advice, and you know, obviously, um, you know, if someone's getting financial advice, that's what we charge for. When I look at all the different things, uh, the roles a financial advisor plays, whether it's you know therapy or goal setting or you know helping track milestones and. You know, the strategic financial advice and then the product advice are the two parts that really fall under the SOA type conversation. Um, but there are so many other parts that, are, that an advisor is doing that they're not necessarily charging for because yeah. all the charging or the, or the fees is locked up in that advice and you know product advice and strategic advice around the, the conversation. So if we think about that, from a point of view of how do we start charging for these non-financial advice parts of our business? Um, How do we do it?
1: Yeah, it's, look, it's not easy. I think uh, for people who are really looking to ingrain this in a cost element into their business, I would suggest starting with the financial. So, you know, if it's, and I think to many in terms of financial planning, it's probably a natural start. Um, So is it a, a case of um, understanding more about the um, superannuation environment, for example. So, you know, if something's happening to someone, can they get access to their super benefits be they TPD or or income protection? Um, Maybe extending that into, you know, compulsory third-party or motor accident type claims. Uh, And, in fact, the client connection, one of the things that we've done is we've developed some fact sheets, state and territory-based fact sheets, because part of the the feedback we got was that... um, many planners were really unaware of how state-based and territory-based matter accident claims work. So we've provided a little fact sheet to talk to, you know, who's covered, our fault driver's covered, what's the tax implications. So it's not something that they necessarily to give out to clients, but something that they can keep in their arsenal as part of their value add from a financial perspective. So uh, of course there's that, uh, which we've included, even things like offset treatment, um, is becoming more topical. So, um, if uh, and I know we're not talking product necessarily, but you know, if someone has an income protection type policy and something happens to them, and maybe there's an entitlement to things like sick leave or long service leave or annual leave, holiday pay. Um, so, part of the uh, advisors working in that uh, advocacy space are actually utilising that as part of their offering, just to talk through, you know, what their entitlement is likely to be based on the quality of their, their contract, you know, if the policy is inside super, if it's in a group super policy or outside of super. So I think the financial element is probably a natural place to start. And from that, um, they can then extend their, you know, th- their value and therefore the cost that they can apply to that non-financial element. So it may be a case of, you know, being able to articulate, well, you know, without uh, clients that go through these particular events we reach out to them every you know month to two months or every fortnight or every week we liaise with certain providers so just kind of being that conduit helping someone um to project manage or direct them into a certain uh, a certain professional uh, and being the go-to for any you know concerns questions um that
0: that, that particular individual may have yeah it's, it's it's really interesting and i think um i think there are also there is a lot of information that advisors could add to the question sets when in that pre space as well of trying to f- find you know like when you're having conversations with clients, are they doing what rec- what recreational activities are they doing um, and getting that information and things like are they doing cycling and soccer and sports or are they doing what 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 are their activities? T- talk to me about how you can think um, advisors can incorporate that into um, their practices.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, the uh, part of the feedback we've received is that it's playing a, an increasing role regardless of age. So even planners that may have, say, a predominantly retiree database, so not typically like an insurance-focused or, or anything like that, they're finding that they're using the tool in that environment because many of these people who are maybe approaching retirement haven't had time to do something and are now entertaining the idea of maybe I'm thinking of doing golf or tennis and, you know, but you know, is it something that I should do or is it something that others are doing? And one of the, the things that we've built in our um, in our sports and injury leisure tool is not just the risks inherent, but the participation rate across other people of that particular age. So, you know, financial advisors can now sit down and say, well, actually, yes, in terms of, you know, tennis uh, and for people your age, you know, there's a certain demographic or percentage of people that are actually undertaking that particular pursuit. So that can actually help them again, from a non-financial perspective, perhaps be able to build a uh, social network for their activity that that they're undertaking. Um, So we're hearing that that's actually providing an interesting value add, something which we didn't didn't necessarily think would be a value, but uh, it's one that's opening up that um, greater engagement piece uh, once again. So yeah, participation rate, um, we've managed to break it down into certain genders and age groups and across many of the, the different key um, pursuits and activities. So uh, that's kind of like an, a bit of a fun interactive tool that advisors can can you know play around with. And just on that fun and interactive tool, where can they find that? So, and that's a good question. So to get access to the tool, the financial fact sheets, uh, what uh, advisors, what you'll need to do is reach out to your Zurich and OnePath contact. The Uh, white papers so the white papers the focus reports we do have them available online so if you go to i don't know if i just give you the the website address fraser um so it's zurich.com.au forward slash the client connection and you simply just you know click on the i think it's like a button on the right hand side that says get your copy today and you'll get access to uh to the reports um and yeah, for the additional tools, if you just reach out to your respective contact, uh, they'll make sure that they get
0: access to that. Yeah, now you mentioned reports as in, as in plural. So um, there is actually the main white paper, as we talked about, which is, uh, I think it's a 44-odd page white paper. Correct. And then there then there are two focus reports as well.
1: That's right. So the white
0: paper we've called Lessons in Leisure. So it talks through what are the pursuits that people are doing.
1: The, the benefits of doing that from a health perspective, but also the risks involved. Uh, the second report, the advisor focus report, which we've called the hidden therapeutic value of advice, really talks to the um, significant value that uh, financial advice offers from that you know psychology and emotional aspect. So that was largely driven off the back of part of the um, incredible findings through the XY advisor community, but understanding people's, uh, not just their financial affairs, but their their non-financial, the the, the issues people are having, the significant value and improvements that people have with their lives through um, engaging with a financial advisor. And the third report, which is our practice-focused report, which we've called Value Beyond the SOA, really is the practical uh, tools that uh, advisors are doing, the shifts they've done in the way that they are providing advice. Um, and gives actual examples of how advisors can implement some of these changes as part of their, their day-to-day.
0: Yep, and obviously I like stats and numbers too, so off the back of some of those reports, I, I'm just looking at one, uh, a line in front of me that says, um, you know, 50, 50% of Australians receiving financial advice reported their mental health had improved as a result, uh, and 38% reported their family life was better. Isn't it interesting, the, these these benefits of uh, financial advice that we don't list um, as a as a benefit?
1: Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's significant and we, from part of the trends, it's only increasing. So it, it's, uh, providing a significant, uh, differentiator to, to people's lives for those that actually choose to engage with a financial
0: planner. Yeah. The whole, uh, better position conversation comes up. And, and when I, when I think about that, everybody always comes back to a financial better position.
1: Yes, but it's a real, it's a lifestyle better position. It's, they're more, uh, yes, financially prepared, but mentally, emotionally, um, you know, their sense of purpose um, is more defined. Like it's quite significant. Uh, and look, if you haven't read the papers, uh, for those listening, I'd certainly urge them uh, to pick them up, have a read, uh, and hope they provide a, a real value add to them and their business.
0: Yeah, I feel like a practical um, off the back of reading these papers and then and doing something about it in your business could be the scenario where you're actually asking some you know, qualitative questioning before the client comes in around how they feel about certain stuff and then and then asking those questions after they've received the advice and be able to track that improvement.
1: Yeah, true. And in fact some clever ways that some advisors are telling us they're doing that is they're kind of introducing that, you know, tried and tested, boring, if you like, fact find F and A, um, to the client, saying, this is, you know, how we kind of gather data, et cetera, but they'll slide it to one side and then just say, But, you know, tell me about you. What are you what are you looking to achieve? What's keeping you up at night? It's those sorts of more open-ended, um, non-financial type questions, which then start the ball rolling. Uh, it's almost like the fact find then becomes almost incidental. So it's quite quite incredible.
0: Mm. So some of those um, questions, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, the the answer I'm thinking is a, you know, on a scale of one to ten, where are you now? And then uh, and then being able to ask those questions after and, and get the show the improvement.
1: Yeah, hundred percent.
0: And and using
1: almost that scale, you could ask them. Um, you know, in 12 months, 24 months time, if we're sitting here again, how can we shift that dial? What would mean an improvement of a, a six or seven today to make it a nine or 10 in 12 or, t- or 24 months time? Uh, and it really gets those clients and potential clients thinking about what it is that they'd like to do. Uh, and it's, it's actually having, a, a, for some practices, what we've understood is it's really extending the fact-finding journey from a single meeting um, to maybe multiple meetings so that they can really garner a proper insights into an individual, um, which is obviously then transforming into better advice for that person.
0: Fantastic. Well, Adam, thanks for coming and chatting with us today. Really appreciate your time and, and sharing your story and your insights with us and uh, and obviously some of the stats that came off the back of the XY community.
1: It's been my pleasure, Fraser. Um, thank you and thanks to the XY advisor community for their assistance with the project.
0: Well, there you have it, another episode of the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack and I'm with Emily Blanche. Hey, Emily. Hey, Fraser. How are you I'm amazing. As you know, as you know, I always say I'm tremendous. I was going to say tremendous again, but thought I better not. Hey, we're here to do some shout outs, the best part of the week for us. So uh, who are we going to shout out today? Yes. So big shout out to XY Advisor Ellie Fordham for making her debut television appearance on the project recently. So if you missed it, Ellie took a group of millennials through a series of questions around how they're engaging with their super in particular and to demonstrate the long-term impact the decisions they make today will have on their financial futures. Um, It was pretty eye-opening actually. It was really great to watch and it just really highlighted the value of making smart money decisions and Ellie really brought that to the table and absolutely crushed it and it also highlighted the value of Um, what an advisor can bring to consumers and to a client's life. So well done, Ellie. There was so much love for you on LinkedIn on this and very well deserved. It was amazing.